0: Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. For this series, we've asked some of our regular Hay interviewers to choose their own personal Hay moments from our archive. This week, it's the turn of author and editor of GQ magazine, Dylan Jones.
1: One of my favourite ever talks um, that I did myself was a talk that I did with Tracy Emin uh, in May 2017. It seems like a very, very long time ago now. It was a Sunday, it was the last big event, and it was in the big tent, and there were 1,500 people there, I think, whatever the maximum is. The extraordinary thing about the audience was that it was so varied. It was pretty much comprehensive in terms of age, gender, race, which reinforced to me the fact that Tracy is something of a a national treasure and i think that one of the reasons that tracy connects with people so clearly uh, and so specifically is because she is innately honest she almost doesn't have a filter and i think not having a filter in her previous incarnations has has made her slightly vulnerable i think the press have taken advantage of her because of that but i think it's her honesty that really connects with people. And in the talk, uh, or the interview, uh, that took place that afternoon, um, Tracy really connected with everybody in in that tent. Uh, She had a standing ovation. And I think there was was a real sense that they got to know in a relatively short period of time someone who As I say, I think most people, if not everyone in that room, previously had already some kind of relationship with. And I've known Tracy for many, many years, over 20 years, 25 years now. And some of the things that she was saying that afternoon, um, I found fascinating. Um, There were elements of her life and her history that that I hadn't known before or perhaps not taken notice of in a particular way before and so she certainly connected with me I hope that uh, we gave her a platform through which she connected with everyone else but you could see it you could see it in, pe- in, in people's sort of rapt expressions it was an extraordinary day um, I think for everyone in that tent it was certainly an extraordinary day for me and I think it was an extraordinary day for uh, Tracy too, because she, um, she really felt that she had made a massive, massive connection.
2: Um, you've always been unapologetically self-obsessed, which I think is one of the reasons why uh, people warm to you. Uh, does, does that public acclaim encourage you to become even more self-obsessed?
3: That's a nice question, Dylan. I'll take it on the chin. <laughs> it's, my, it's my friend, you know. Um, as an artist, and to be a serious artist, if you're not self-focused... That's what it says, <laughs> focused. <laughs> then then you, you'll, be, you'll be led to you know, distraction, and you, you won't necessarily have the conviction with what you're doing. Now, this does sound very Van Goghish or whatever, but if I don't <laughs> spend at least... In, in a week, if I don't spend at least three days alone in a week, then I can't work. And when I work, I have to work at night, and I work all weekends. And this weekend, being a bank holiday, normally I would definitely be working in the studio, because on Monday nobody, nobody would be coming into the studio, and it means I have longer to be myself. And, and as I get older, the self-focus becomes Whatever. more becomes more extreme because um, I I really need to um, understand what I'm doing and unravel everything and I can't do that by. It has to all be about me. It has to come from me. And then it has to go out in the world. So if I'm not sure about what I'm doing, it shouldn't go out into the world. It's not genuine. It wouldn't be sincere for me to do that. I have to be really assured about what I'm doing. And because of that, you do have to have a certain level of, like, narcissism, self obsessed especially if the work is about myself. And it isn't just about me, it's about me being a woman now, 54. Before it was about me being a woman who was 32, or a girl being 20. And that's my subject matter, that's what I work with. So I have to work on my subject, which is me. And by doing that, when I was younger, it could have been perceived as a negative narcissism or vanity. But I think now as I get older, people, especially when I explain it, understand the reasoning behind it. You know, I don't have a partner, I don't have children, I don't have a family life like other people do. All I have is my art. So, I... I, that is my obsession, not me. Hmm.
1: You've...
2: You've... you've, um, You once said, in fact, you've said on many occasions, that the art takes the place of your children.
3: Yeah, when I, when I was younger, it used to really embarrass me. I used oh, how sickly. When people would say their paintings were their children, i think, yeah, right, you know. But actually, most of the people that said that were men who actually did also have a ton of children. But <laughs> as my art really has replaced what would be, say, my nuclear family, my family, my art is my, what I grow, what I develop, what I work with, and what I respond with within myself, and it works... I think if you're, I I imagine if you have a family, your family works as a kind of cathartic process for yourself to develop within a nucleus, within a group. And for me, it's like that with my work. My work surrounds me, and I develop within that, and it grows around me. It sounds really almost pretentious, and when I was younger, I used to think it was, but now that I'm older, I totally understand the people, and especially women artists who didn't have children, that would say that. Because, it, because that's really... I care so much about my work. I'm so passionate about it. I, you know, that's why I get hurt when I have really bad criticism. It nearly kills me because, you know, don't, don't say terrible things about what I really love. You know, it's, it's more like that. It's not the vanity of being hurt or the ego. It's about the fact that I really believe in what I'm doing.
2: You get a round of applause after every question. Um, <laughs> a lot of your work is highly sexual. Uh, and is unapologetically honest about love, sex, relationships. Now, does this work come from a place of sadness, a place of happiness? Where does it come from?
3: When I was younger, I made this painting, a really rough painting, on just a pink piece of canvas, and it was someone being fucked up the arse. And it said, you know, if I told the truth, I'd much rather not be painting. Because a lot of the sexuality in my work is about the fact that I'm not having sex and the fact that I think about it and when I was younger it would be because I was desiring it because I wanted it I wanted wanted sex so I'd put that into my work but now all of the sexual work is more to do with the loss of love and lust and sex and about moving on from that and and it, a lot of it is to do with memory looking back as well and trying to understand the touch. my next exhibitions Called um, the memory of your touch, and as we're at a literary festival, I'll explain where the title comes from. It comes from um, <laughs> um, it comes from Lady Chatterley's Lover, not not directly, but it's the part when when she's talking about the body coming up from the mine, his dead body, and she can't even remember his touch because he's dead because you know, you can't remember touch. It, you you, you Only in dreams, basically. And so, a lot of the sexual work that I'm doing now is I'm trying to remember what it was like. I'm trying to remember how it felt to have that passion, to have that desire to be entwined with someone, to be with one person, to be part of that person. That's what I try to do now when I'm painting something sexual or erotic. But recently, my paintings have become more kind of abstract because the memory is vague. It's more blurry, and that's me being more honest. Hmm.
2: Every time. How important is is insecurity to an artist?
3: Well, this is a, a people think being as an artist, you know, being slightly crazy, you know, whatever, and being drunk and being crazy and. Uh, by the way, I've never taken drugs in my life, but but you know a lot of artists have, whether they're drinking absinthe or 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 you know like Samuel Coleridge or people you know doing opium or whatever it is. People have often thought that you need some sort of stimulus outside and you need that insecurity to be a free spirit and everything, but it's not true. The more secure you are, the better work you're going to make, and that's obvious because you'll have more time to make it and you'll be doing more of the right thing at the right time. And that's another thing you learn as you get older, which is pretty o- annoying and boring, but it's the truth, so...
1: didn't mm. happen, that one.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> no one agrees with me. Yeah, everyone, doesn't just go off and party, yeah.
2: <laughs> Your honesty has become part and parcel of what you do, um, but why do you share so much?
3: I don't know, I think this comes back to this not... But like, I've always made this kind of work that's about myself, and people used to call it confessional art, which is kind of a silly title. But, you know, 30 years ago, people weren't as up front and speaking from the first person that they are now. Like you open any newspaper supplement and the journalist is talking about how they felt, how I am. It's all I, I, I. 30 years ago, you never would have found that because it would have been seen as being demeaning or undermining or, or, or not warranted to write from that perspective. But now I think everything's changing and everything has become the, you know within the first person to a point of oversaturation. and and it worries me to a degree that people are exposing themselves too much. I'm an artist, and I then have an exhibition, and so I edit what I do. I understand the the boundaries of where it is, but a lot of people, especially younger people now, don't understand that. They're just so obsessed, Dylan, with... um With their, you know, like whether it's taking selfies or whatever. When I take selfies and when I do, i never, they never used, I've been doing it for like 40, more than that, all my life, going to the photo booth machine. I was taking a record of my development and how I perceived myself and how I was thinking from a psychological and philosophical point of view. I wasn't just going, hmm, yeah, I look great like this, I look great like that. It wasn't about me looking good all the time, either. It was just about me keeping this external record of myself. And so, um, what was the question, Dylan? (laughs) Honesty. Honesty, yeah. Well, yeah. I've just been honest enough to say I forgot what his question was. But I've always been honest with me, who I am, and and even in life when I've fucked up or I made really big mistakes, I've thought, right, that's happened. Now I've got to work on that, understand why that happened, and and not do it again. And I think people who don't confront themselves or, the, or their mistakes, um, they never develop and they never grow. And I really, you know, I've got like another thirty years left um, to to grow and develop and move on. And I'm going to make the most of every single moment. So,
2: You talk, you put, you talk about... Come on, you've got to clap or not clap. <laughs> you, talk, you talk about um, social media, particularly Instagram, uh, and it's very easy to be reductive about Instagram, talking about selfies, etc. But not everybody does that. It's, it's, it's completely changing the way people um, behave in their, in, in terms of leisure activities. Um, m- most people would criticize that and say that actually it's had a negative effect, uh, on particularly on the young, uh, and also in terms of the mass production of imagery, uh, because it's fragrantly abusing copyright. But there are interesting things coming out of it. How do you think that, ca- that could change, and is, it, is any of it art?
3: Phew, it's, it's hard to say. I think um, I think out of all of the social media, I, I think Instagram's probably the nicest and the most useful for people keeping in touch. And there isn't that much. You don't have to do that much. There's not that much expected of you. But I think in general, forget Dylan's question. <laughs> I think in general, what in a big answer to, to the whole thing, I think people are far too obsessed in in. Gadgetry, full stop. And I'm not a Luddite, but I think people aren't really touching things anymore. They're not getting emotionally involved anymore. Things are moving too fast. Like, you just walk into a newspaper, you know, newsagents, there's so many magazines now. It's just like a blaze of colour.
2: Steady. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) <laughs> too many men's magazines. Yeah, no, no, but no, but seriously, people aren't being discerning enough about what they want or what they need. And I think, in terms of being an artist, that's kind of a problem for me because people are viewing a lot of things is either a problem for me or it's a great thing for me. People view things too superficially and too on the surface, and they don't actually. So art for me is something that should make you stand still, and stop, and think. And you should feel emotionally bound by it. It shouldn't be just something you look at, blink, and take a photograph and move on. It should be something you feel. And I think a lot of I think now a lot of the things that are happening are avoid feeling. And that, that really scares me because everyone's like happy to put up on like their social media how they're feeling today or what they're doing or what they're eating or whatever. But <laughs> are they really feeling anything? And and without true feeling and without true emotion, you don't develop as a human being, as a a soul.
2: We're getting longer as well. (laughs) Um, Just reeling back a bit to when you had that first flush of success, how did that change your motivation? And how did it change your impression of what you were able to do with your art? Because you had that... You had a sort of thoroughfare there, didn't you?
3: Okay. so this is the real truth. This is really awful what I'm going to say. I was so high on the success and so happy in the 90s. We were all so happy in the 90s that I didn't really um, capitalise on it. I just went with it, I just went with the flow of everything. And it's only really been in the last 10 years that I've realised what I have and wh- how fantastic it is, that I've actually nurtured it, reused really it, concentrated on it, understood that it's something very special and how lucky I am. And I think when I was younger, I kind of felt that, but I didn't, didn't work with it. So, in a way, I kind of abused the situation that I was in, and I feel really bad about that. And when I look back on everyone that used to slag my generation off, going, oh, they're just like, it's the emperor's new clothes, or they're just wean it, or they're untalented, I can really see why people might have thought that or said it. Because I'm much older now, looking back. I'll, if If I could go back to myself, when I was you know, t- 30 years ago or 20 years ago, I think I would have shook me and sort of <laughs> slapped me around the face and said, pull yourself together and concentrate. You know, it's like being, being, being talented or, or whatever and sitting at the back of the class and mucking around all the time. I, it was kind of like that in a way. And now I'm not at the back of the class. Now I'm the teacher and it's, it's a different level of responsibility and I take it very, very seriously.
1: It would be difficult to pick one performance by Simon Sharma because he has made so many appearances at Hay and he put such a huge amount of effort into his talks, um, his readings. He's a natural performer anyway. He seems to have an innate gift for communication. His appearance at the Hay Festival on Sunday at uh, the 25th of May 2014 where he was talking about the story of the Jews is a talk that that resonates uh, and has resonated with me ever since I um, always make an effort to try and um, go and see Simon um, even when he's talking about something I'm not particularly interested in um, because he does an enormous amount of research and his talks, his presentations, his interviews, uh, always fascinating, usually thought provoking, and they leave you with a sense that you have had a proper immersive experience. This tends to be when a when a talk is successful at hey you you tend to come away with that feeling, that's the feeling that you want and often I found myself going to things that uh, um, talks by people I'm not particularly aware of, talking about topics I'm not particularly well-versed in, and they tend to be the ones that, that um, are the most rewarding. But this talk uh, on this Sunday uh, in May 2014 was, was a deeply, deeply fascinating hour and just makes me realise that um, Sharma is, is one of those people that you should always rush to listen to because it's always a rewarding experience.
0: What the Jews called Amsterdam was Makom, which is, they called it particularly that in the 19th and 20th century, which simply means the place. It just simply means the place, Makom. And what it meant was a place actually where none of the above actually was obtained. Um, wasn't the case necessarily in all Protestant societies. We're not talking about a simple Catholic anti-Catholic kind of division in the way Christian cultures behave towards Jews. Luther is unbelievably vitriolic about um, Jews as kind of walking demons. Calvin is not particularly, he's nowhere near as ferocious as Luther, but not particularly a friend. But in the Netherlands, in the northern Netherlands in particular, um, Amsterdam and Holland more generally became a place where Jews, without actually having... Available to them, some grand charter of official toleration simply were left to get on with their daily life and their business. There were leaders of the Jewish community, many of them, the first to come in, are from this world of Portuguese runaway, underground railway, half-Jews who become Jews again. Becoming Jews again, by the way, in Amsterdam, where you could do it was no, if you were a man, was no easy thing because it presupposed, ouch, adult circumcision. So you thought long and hard about whether, how serious you were about that. But Amsterdam, then, if you look at actually the piecemeal little regulations that are passed by individual cities, one one big difference, I think, much more than Catholic-Protestant, is that in states in the kind of time that I'm talking about that were fiercely centralized if you were a pope or you were a king or an emperor like Charles V you could lay down the law and there could indeed be renegade tolerant members of the church who would choose not to obey the most maniacally ferocious strictures but the Netherlands was something else again as it still more or less is there was no overarching central government or not much of it and every city was pretty much to do what it Wanted, and there were of course the Jews with their roots in the Atlantic trading world were a real asset to an empire on, um, on the rise. But the first thing that really happened was that Jews were allowed to be apply um, for citizenship it, in Dutch. It's portier. I don't any anybody Dutch here. Portier it used to be known as porterschap, um, now known as brucherschap. So it basically means a right of residence. Okay, right of residence. This is already, and we're talking about 1616 here. So we're still in a very, you know, the Inquisition is going great guns in Portugal and much of the Catholic world. So we're talking about something that is so simple. You can live where you want to live. Were there Jewish districts in Holland? There sure were, but I don't know how many Jews are here. The reason is you want to live um, within walking distance of a synagogue because on the Sabbath and High Holy Days you couldn't take... In Amsterdam, it would have been a barge or a boat or, in other cities, a horse. So if there are Jewish districts, they're Jewish districts entirely of um, a voluntary nature. And actually, when some Dutch cities in the sort of 1620s and 30s were not quite sure if they wanted Jews invisibly among them because, again... No signs of distinction in dress were allowed. The Portuguese and Spanish Jews who moved in wore the same hats the same mustaches the same beards the same breeches the same boots as absolutely anybody else in fact actually there was a, one of the reasons why the number of Rembrandt Jewish pictures was exaggerated out of looking at people with skull caps was because Dutch Calvinist pastors wore skull caps as well as as well as Jews at the time so the towns that weren't quite weren't quite happy to have suddenly a population of immigrant Jews moving among them, wondered if they couldn't actually decree that the Jews should live in a particular part of the city, and they were forbidden to do so. I said there was no central government, but there, were, there was a body, a sort of legislative body for each of the provinces. So the states of Holland... Is this really hard history class? I can't hear anybody snoring, but, you know, so... <laughs> I hope it's all all right. There will be the usual exam, but, you know, so try not to go to sleep. Um, so um, when they petitioned the states of Holland, they are absolutely not. Um, distinctions of dress are forbidden. Um, the, any kind of attempt to enforce a particular place of residence is impermissible. So that was a really good thing. It didn't mean to say that Calvinist preachers weren't horrified by the prospect of a large population of Jews among them, who they still thought might actually corrupt the souls of good Mennonites and Calvinists and um, members of the Reform Church. But by and large, it was possible to do all the things which that papal bull I mentioned wouldn't actually let you do in Holland and to some extraordinary degree flourish. Here's a, here's a good example of something which seemed almost sort of inconceivable to anybody else. And remember, at that time, there were no Jews in England at all, actually. That happens as a result of a particular Dutch visit by the rabbi Manasseh bin Israel to Oliver Cromwell in 1655 and 1656. So something extraordinary happened. In 1628, a Jew from a Portuguese background called David Curiel, uh, whose grandmother had been burnt alive by the Inquisition, who'd, they'd been on the kind of runaway route of the Underground Railway, is um, beaten up and robbed and stabbed by somebody simply in the archives described as a German. Um, but he 's not completely down and out, even though he 's bleeding and he gets up and he starts to chase the robber through the streets of amsterdam and Pretty soon his own a hue and cry occurs in his own neighborhood, and the neighbors then actually all join in the hunt they actually get the the malefactor, they get the culprits and the culprit is tried and convicted and hanged and executed and then what happened to Thebes was that their bodies were given over to the anatomy and les- that's anas- doctors of anatomy for public um, anatomical dissection. Those of you who know, again, Rembrandt's famous painting, The Anatomy Lesson of Doctor Two, are looking at a particular petty thief who stole one purse too many called Aris Kint or Harry the Kid. So it was with David Curiel. The extraordinary thing is that Curiel, um, when the dissection, the execution took place, and the dissection was going to take place always in the winter months. If you do it in the summer, it's going to pong a little bit. David Curiel gets a letter from the states of Holland and from the judicial authorities and from the city of Amsterdam inviting him to the dissection. Because the dissection was not simply an exercise for science, it was also the body of a criminal, in some sense, sort of repaying the consequences of his own crime. For actually an official body to go out of the way to write to a Jew and say, um, justice has been served, we now like, we don't know if he went or not, was itself a kind of remarkable thing. If you read parts of, you know, Anne Frank's diary, and by the way, as a Shock horror digression. Could it be? Um, those of you who've not, how many of you have heard of the name Etty Hillesum? Tool. I'm seeing a clever person in the front row. Um, are you from? Are you, are you Dutch? No, you're not. Okay. Well, you'll know that actually, um, and obviously, I have a sea of hands if I ask for Anne Frank. But there is another very great diary um, of another young Dutch woman, much older than Anne Frank. Um, I think it starts when she's. 18 19 she's a student anyway isn't she? and um, it 's an, called an uninterrupted life and you can find it on amazon she 's a very different sort of person she's she shares Anne Frank 's high spirits and she's at the time the kind of diary picks up she 's infatuated with a slightly zany kind of psychology professor and bad things happen there but she 's also someone who's really indifferent to her Jewish identity um, but you gradually become swallowed up by the drama and tragedy of your own people, and like Anne Frank, she dies in terrible circumstances. And so the name is Etty Hillesum, H-I-A-L-E-S-U-M. and it's a little masterpiece of, of writing about the war. But what I wanted to say was some of the most passionate and moving passages in Anne Frank's diary are about Macomb are about the sense in which even though they're a German family that's taken refuge in Amsterdam, she's going to a Dutch school, she has Dutch friends, the whole kind of epic of hers is really in some sense her reaction to it and her sunny optimism, which is not completely sustained, as you know, but it is conditioned by this very particular history of kind of inadvertent, indirect, but socially true tolerations It's not a toleration of kind of French Revolution principles of the rights of Jews and man or anything like that. It's a day-to-day um, uh, possibility of Jews and not Jews living together. Not entirely ideal. There were problems, even even in Holland, um, in the period I'm talking about. Um, what were the problems? Well, the problems were, for example, that the guilds, which ran a large part of Dutch economic life, did not want Jewish competition. So in 1632 in particular, they said Jews can't, be part of any trades or occupations which were organised in guilds. And that meant an awful lot. It meant there were no Jewish bakers, no Jewish carpenters, no Jewish tailors, and, oi, no Jewish dressmakers, a shocking thing. They were missing something. But it also meant that Jews were, had to find themselves in niche areas of the economy often which were the new addictions, sugar and tobacco. Jews were very big in tobacco. Tobacco drying, processing, importing from Brazil, same thing for sugar. And Jews were, again, almost as momentous as the little story I told you about the anatomized criminal um, delivering his debt back to society, Jews were allowed on the stock exchange, the second stock exchange to be organised in all of Europe, the Amsterdam Bourse. And uh, it's partly because the Jews had ways of finding liquid capital which could be deployed to fund joint stock ventures, big trading, shipping concerns going out to the East and West Indies. So the Jews had this special position in... Also in gems and diamonds, that's an old Jewish, Netherlandish uh, preoccupation. And they still are, of course, actually. You know, Jews very prominent in diamond industry, both in Antwerp and Amsterdam. So there were ways in which you could go about your life. And wherever you look, there are markers of... I won't say the kind of normalisation of Jewish life quite, although it went a long way towards it. But it was in some way... Um, much harder in Holland than anywhere else, than anywhere else, I think, that except in the Ottoman Empire, in the, in the Muslim world, particularly the Ottoman Muslim world. It was much harder to dehumanise the Jews, um, to make them the sort of people that would have you name your village with innocent hilarity, kill the Jews' town.
1: One of my favourite talks at Hay uh, was ten years ago now, and it was when I interviewed... James Cowan, who was then a um, three-star general in the British Army. And he came to talk about counter-insurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan. And as a brigadier, he commanded the Black Watch in Iraq and the multinational Eleven Brigade in Helmand. And at the time, he was the head of counter-terrorism in, in the Ministry of Defence. He now runs Halo. For me, this was a a mere job of introducing James and then fielding and organising questions after the talk. And it was a typically fascinating hour, very instructive, very matter-of-fact. It was a slightly unusual invitation, I think, uh, for James to come and talk at the festival. He insisted in doing it in uniform, which I thought was very important not my idea, his idea, but I thought it was very important all the same to, con- to contextualize what he was saying. But it was instructive not just because he was talking in very often prosaic terms about the, the logistics of being in and fighting in those countries, but also the context surrounding those areas of conflict in, in conflicted lands was deeply, deeply interesting. And it wasn't the biggest tent, but I certainly felt that everyone who left that talk that day on Friday the 3rd of June 2011 really came away having listened to someone, an expert, at the top of their game. And it was impossible to leave that tent without feeling like you'd had a a massive sort of knowledge dump. It was a brilliant, brilliant afternoon.
4: Well, when we arrived um, in the autumn of 2009, some very significant changes had taken place because uh, the new American president, President Obama, had appointed a new commander, General Stanley McChrystal, and McChrystal was told to go and conduct a 60-day review and come back to the president with a notion of what ought to be done. With characteristic energy, he finished his review in 48 days, and he came back to the president with some very stark conclusions. He said, we're winning every battle, but we're losing this war. We're acting alone as a coalition. We're not acting in partnership with the Afghan people. We need to use much less force. We're killing too many civilians. And we need, in order to be able to stop using that force, to apply more mass. We need more troops. It sounds counterintuitive, but you need more troops in order to not rely so much on lethal force. That was a very difficult and quite unpalatable thing, perhaps, for a president to have to accept, so newly in office, that he should be trying to reinforce the war of his predecessor. He considered that, and it was made more difficult for him by the fact that the Afghans held an election between President Karzai and Abdullah Abdullah, the two shown here. And those elections were, A, profoundly corrupt, and B, hugely indecisive. So it was unlikely that the President was going to make his mind up easily on the back of such a difficult outcome. And so, in a sense, Afghanistan hung in the balance during the autumn of last year, whilst America decided... ...on which course of action it should adopt. But perhaps uh, that resulted in the situation that we found in that summer of 2009. A very difficult period, which I know some of you may have attended the last lecture... Um, ...I think gives you the context for which that very, very brave brigade, 19th Brigade, endured uh, during that summer in, in Helmand. This is a snapshot from that period. The significant act, the SIG Act, is that ghastly term, beloved of military men. It's the metric of violence. It means a bombing or a shooting. And it shows in that month of June 2009, what took place in the south. It shows in the Canadian area of Kandahar, 105 incidents. In the Romanian area, 33. In the Dutch area, only 18. And in the newly arrived American area of southern Helmand, only 60 incidents. The Americans had come to help the British with a brigade of Marines. but What in fact had happened was they'd adopted positions largely in the desert to the south and not in the Helmand River Valley, that area where that great river valley project I talked about earlier had happened. This is where the vast majority of the population of Helmand lives. Three-quarters of the population live there, and it's therefore no great surprise that 263 violent incidents should have taken place in the British area during that month of June. We were, in a sense, at the very heart of this storm by virtue of the poor troop ratios between the numbers of British soldiers, not only British soldiers but Afghan soldiers, and the people. It's not the people... It's not the enemy that we're measuring here, it's the population. And there's Gulab Mangal, the governor of Helmand in the bottom left. He came to me on my arrival and said that we were losing. The British were not dealing with what was going on. I had to go to him and say, it was not the quality of British soldiers at fault, but that we simply did not have enough troops to do what was required of us. Now, to the great credit of our government at that time, in fact, the British did reinforce later. uh, And we also drew in our area further. And whilst at that time we were responsible for three of the four most violent districts in all of Afghanistan, we're only responsible for two of those now, and we have since handed over Sangin and Musakala. I don't think that's to our um, shame whatsoever. I think it's still a huge responsibility dealing with something that still remains very much at the heart of this campaign. But that was the situation that prevailed at that time. So what was our task? Well, also to the great credit of President Obama, he approved the surge. uh, And once he'd got his troops... General McChrystal decided he would use them in the south. He appointed a new British general, General Carter, to command in the south, and General Carter came up with a three-phase plan. It was as follows. First, in phase one, to gain control around Kandahar and to gain freedom of movement on roads. Why do roads matter so much? If you're a farmer and you can't sell your goods because someone's going to rob you as you move those goods from Helmand to Kandahar, you'll fall back on an illicit trade such as drugs. And that's really why freedom of movement mattered. And then in phase two, to clear central Helmand, the second main population center, before returning again to Kandahar to protect it once the bulk of the American reinforcements had arrived in the summer of 2010. So a three-phase operation. Start in Kandahar, move to central Helmand, and then come back to Kandahar. Yes, do stuff in the outlying areas, but frankly, those are desert areas, and those aren't areas where you need to dedicate too much resource. So how were we going to approach this in Helmand? four themes I'm going to talk about. The people, creating what we call protected communities where we save those people from being attacked, the reform of the police and the army, and then the clearance of Central Helmand itself. Let me talk a little bit about what I mean by population-centric counterinsurgency. This little rather complicated slide is actually, when you understand it, relatively simple. What it shows is the immediate effect of General McChrystal's order to stop the use of aerial-delivered and artillery munitions. The blue line shows how much ammunition was being used. You can see its height at this point and its gradual drop-off almost to nothing uh, by the end of the year. The blue line, the light blue line, is smoke and illumination rounds. They don't hurt people, so you can discount that line. But I think what's really interesting is, despite the fact we've stopped using all this, what we haven't done is uh, see our own casualties increase. The numbers of British soldiers killed and wounded in fact drops off. By beginning to look out for the interests of the people, so the people begin to turn towards us, and so violence is avoided. It's a win-win for both sides. But it does require what we termed courageous restraint. What I mean by that term is not a sort of um, a charter for inaction. What I wanted my soldiers was to manoeuvre. I wanted my soldiers to close with the enemy. Yes, certainly fire aim shots if they could see an enemy, but not to fire great volumes of fire into an unobserved wood line. I wanted them to close with them and then maneuver to a flank, taking the risk of the ubiquitous IED, the improvised explosive device, and then to work around the enemy to dislocate him, to disrupt him, and ultimately to defeat him through maneuver rather than through firepower. That's asking a lot of people, sometimes very young people. And the very center of this problem um, was Sangin. Now, I always talk about Sangin, Because it was the place where half of my soldiers died. Uh, uh, But I particularly want to talk about it today because the wife of uh, the commanding officer of that battalion is present here in the audience today. And when you are uh, a battalion, a community of 600 soldiers, of whom about probably 200 are married, and 32 of your soldiers are killed, that's a hell of a lot of people and a huge strain on families at home. So this, I think, tells... The story for those soldiers. Soldiers encounter the enemy once in every 2.4 patrols. Patrolling three times a day, they have a statistical certainty of meeting the enemy on a daily basis. Sangin has suffered the most with a one in six chance of being killed or wounded. In one company, there's been a one in four chance of being killed or wounded. And 49% of those killed and 20% of those wounded have been in Sangin. And the thing that was killing them was not just uh, ordinary small arms fire, but the IED. What was different from Iraq, where um, the Arab is interested in innovation, the Pashtun is a very conservative people. Uh, here's lots of military abbreviations. I apologize. Command pull, you yank the wire, the bomb goes off. Command wire, you send a signal down a wire, the bomb goes off. A mine, largely an old Soviet mine, remote controlled, uh, mobile telephones, suicide pedestrian. You wear a vest, you detonate yourself. Sometimes children, suicide vehicle borne, uh, self-explanatory. Vehicle borne, but the vast majority of devices were VOIBD, victim-operated IEDs. In other words, a soldier stands on it. uh, And that is a very difficult thing to deal with. A very low technology, very simple, very cheap to build, but increasingly made with no metal or low metal. And that became the challenge that we faced. The people who had to deal with those was the man at the front uh, with a thing called the Valen. The Valen man is the soldier who clears the route using a Valen mine detector. He's always at the front at the highest point of risk. With low metal or no metal in IEDs, this task has become more dangerous. The readings of the Valen are often faint and inconclusive or non-existent. These soldiers are often very young and junior members of a the section. They are universally known as brave. In one battle group, 12 Valen men were killed and 12 were wounded. So we needed to find a way around this because it was not likely to be a technical solution to this problem. Here's a little example of what I mean by counterinsurgency rather than counter IED. We took one area... Uh, around a base called Keenan. And we mapped out land ownership, because nobody knew who owned what, because all the records had been destroyed. And by mapping out land ownership and making sure each farmer understood what belonged to him, we created a community of interest, a surer, uh, and we paid that surer $5,000 a month. And for every ID that went off, we fined them. So we weren't creating perverse incentives by paying them in order to lay IDs in order to get paid. Um, we were, in a sense, uh, making sure that they understood this was their problem But it would both help them uh, by getting rid of the IED and help them by uh, dealing with the economic problems that the village uh, had to handle. The remarkable thing was, within a very short space of time, the villagers began to report the IEDs and began to clear the area of IEDs. There were fistfights between villagers and members of the Taliban. And this didn't just help the British Army, because far more women and children, children in particular, are killed by IEDs than soldiers ever are. And so... This is the way forward in my view. There were never going to be a technical solution to the problems of Afghanistan, but low-level social solutions of this kind.
0: Thanks for listening. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers and you can find over 8,000 more recordings on The Hay Player on our website. Join us next time for another trip through the Hay Archives.